Hi, I'm Sophie, and you're listening to Navigating New York, a podcast where I chat with people living and working in one of the most fast-paced cities in the world. Through these conversations, I hope to make living in the Big Apple a little less overwhelming. As the song goes, if you can make it here, you'll make it anywhere. So whether you're living here now, planning to move, or just interested in hearing real stories from people pursuing that American dream, I hope that you enjoy. On this week's episode, I chat to Mickey Coleman, a well-known and respected Tyrone man living in New York for 10 years. Mickey has two All-Ireland football medals with Tyrone in 2003 and 2005 and is still very involved in the sport here in New York with his club, Rockland GAA. When he moved to New York, Mickey met his now wife, Erin Loughran, and the pair have two gorgeous young sons. Mickey and Erin are both musicians and Erin runs her own school of Irish music and arts. On top of all of that, Mickey owns his own construction company, Shoreline Builders, and has navigated his journey in New York very impressively. However, just five months ago, everything changed for Mickey when he suffered what's known as a widowmaker heart attack, a form of heart attack with only a 6% survival rate. At just 41 years of age and a very fit and healthy father of two, the heart attack completely changed Mickey's approach to life. We chat about what Mickey calls a spiritual awakening and a new approach to life that encompasses three areas of wellness, physical, mental and spiritual. Mickey's recovery and heart functionality has stumped his doctors and he tells me why he thinks a plant-based diet is medicine for the body. Mickey and Aaron have set up an Instagram page called Hearty Plant-Based Food, which is an account full of recipes they believe will change your health and well-being. We chat about all of this, but not before I get Mickey's predictions on the All-Ireland football final this Saturday between Tyrone and Mayo. I hope you enjoy. Just firstly, Mickey, I'm so happy to have you on as a guest on Navigating New York because you've paved your way here so well. You know, you're a superb musician. You own your own construction company. You have a young family. You're very involved in the GAA. But earlier this year, you had a very near-death experience. You suffered a very serious heart attack. And today you live to tell the tale. And I can't wait to hear everything. But firstly, before we get into that, on a bit of a lighter note, it's a massive week for your home county of Tyrone. And you yourself have won two All-Irelands with Tyrone in 03 and 05. And I wanted to ask you first, what's your predictions for Saturday? Well, first of all, thanks very much, uh, Sophie. It's great to be here. For in terms of the football this weekend, actually, I'm flying home for it, and I cannot wait. It's uh, not something that we had anticipated this year, to be fair, but I'm absolutely thrilled at how the team's playing. I don't think too many were expecting the result that we got last week. Phenomenal. It brings me back to the days of 2003. and that I feel like there's that kind of buzz around the county. Everybody, just from speaking to ones at home, you know, everybody's uplifted. The form's good, and I can't wait. Like, obviously... I'm going to back Tyrone, I'm confident. But I will say, I will say to all your other Mayo listeners, it's probably going to be the first ever All-Ireland that I would walk out of, that we were beat, I would actually wouldn't be too annoyed. Okay, that's good. That's very humble. I love that. But that's one thing I always admire about Tyrone people, even though I'm a Down woman and, and Tyrone and Down don't have the best history, but Tyrone supporters are probably the most like loyal supporters in all of Ireland. Like they just really idolise the team, and I think you can definitely feel that this year. Oh, absolutely! But it's, you know what it is. Like I'm from Arbo, 
little place called Arbo. It's the kind of place you either go until it or you're not going until it. Like you don't <laughs> go through it to pass through to go anywhere else, you know. Yeah. We're very we're very isolated, like, but we have a, a couple of lads on the panel and that makes it all the more sweeter, you know. You know their parents, you grew up with their mom and father and then people and it's just great, you know, to see that it's just a great buzz around the place. The only sad side to it all is that there's a limited capacity that can get in there this weekend and people are fighting to get tickets and people aren't going to get tickets but it is what it is you know so do you believe in the mayo curse well you know what i was reading there was an article i think done about him in the irish independent there a couple of days ago and i text one of my friends and says i hope that boy doesn't die before the weekend oh god <laughs> and what do you think about brian Deher? he's really come in and and changed things up for Tyrone. do you think that was needed uh, absolutely look i think every you know Everything's relevant. Fergal, Logan and Brian, I both know well, obviously. Uh, Brian, from playing alongside him. Brian Duher, uh, they don't make boys like Brian Duher. It's just, and that, you know, that's a cliche that's fired around, but he really is a unique person. If you really knew him, you know, you could tell a lot by how he played the game. He was he was a warrior, like he really, you know, Brian, the, the old laugh and joke was Brian Duher only started to play well when you hit him. You know, when he got a few laps, he would start just, playing you know he was just a phenomenal phenomenal man um on the field and always led was a man of very few words but always led with action and you know i don't know much about his managerial sort of um credentials but i would imagine if he if he takes a little bit of what he showed like you can only imagine with them lads you know here's a man talking that has he's done as he talking the talk but he has certainly walked the walk many many years and has been at the forefront of all the throne victories, has played a huge part in all of that. And I think that that's very inspiring for a player to see that this is your manager, this is the man that's leading you into the charge. You know, you're going to take all take all of that. And, you know, Brendan is not going to ask any player to do anything that he couldn't have done himself. And then I think it's a perfect storm with him and Fergal Logan. Like, they're both very well-educated men. Brian's a vet, Fergal's a solicitor. Like they're shrewd operators. They're not. No, they had that on the twenty-one team a few years back that, that beat Tipperary, I believe, in the final in Parnell Park. These guys and Fergal played midfield for Throne in the ninety-five team, so they know their football. Like they're very shrewd operators, and there'll be there'll be no stone left in torn. But Brand, absolutely sure, it's the proofs in the pudding, you know. Yeah, hundred percent. And he seems to have injected a new sort of bit of life into the Throne side, and uh, you know, even though he would have been you know a half forward he was always I thought like a very defensive footballer too and that's what Tyrone's like defense this year have been unbelievable and then I wanted to get your thoughts on Niall Morgan the goalkeeper he sort of has a, a different style <laughs> he's got the head mass what, what do you think about his <laughs> his uh, strategy I, I can give you the political answer or I can give you the honest answer I think I'll give you the honest answer now listen I, I wanted to kiss the man when he knocked over that 70 yard uh, free kick Unbelievable. We're we're just we're all very proud of the fact that Thrones in it and the lad. You know we're exiles like yourself. You know it there's a, it tends to bring out the best in you in terms of you know you, you tend to get closer to the people at home the further away you are for some reason or another. Amazing, but I have to say now every time he comes out past the twenty yard line, you're saying, "Oh Jesus, past!" <laughs> give, give it a, you know, you're, oh, know. Hey, that's all the excitement of it. You know, I'm, I was delighted to see him kicking that ball over the bar because he like like the Mayo keeper he's had a few tough games you know um, and it's good to see it like nobody sets out trust me to represent their county or club to 
to do the wrong to do the wrong thing or for things to go against them. You know, it's just not something that anybody and they have to understand these guys are, are amateur footballers, like you know, they try their best, they work hard. Some days it goes your way and some days it doesn't personally, you know. But that's mm-hmm. the way it is. But you know, <laughs> he's an exciting player. Let me just put it that way. That's a good way to put it. And you just touched on it there, Mickey. Something I really agree with is like whenever you're an exile and an, an expat and you've moved away, your sense of home and your identity with home definitely becomes stronger. And certainly you've carried that all the traditions and cultures of your upbringing in Ardbo over here to New York with your career as a musician and your involvement in the GAA. What was it that brought you initially over to New York? So I had I kind of finished my football on career, uh, football with my club Arbo and with Tyrone, and I was asked by Seamus McNabb to would I come and play for a sea uh, a summer with Tyrone out here. So you know playing club football and county football at home, you didn't take too many summer holidays, you know, and yeah, and I just wanted a bit of a change, and I said, you know what, I'll try it. So it came out, and I'll, something just grabbed me in New York. Something just, I just said, this is where I want to be. I said, I'm going to try it. And I'm here here ever since. I then got my visa and played for my visa, got it. And then I was working here for about a year. And then I started my own company. And the rest is sort of history. I met my wife, Erin, and with two lovely boys now. And life is good. And that's funny. I was just thinking before the podcast, I remember when I met Erin like six years ago through the Rosa Tralee and I was I was like, oh, you're married to Mickey Coleman. And she was telling me about the first time she said eyes on you. She knew she was going to marry you. And I was like, I, an old romantic. I just thought that was the nicest story. Did you feel there the same way? Well, let me put it this road. I knew it was it was special anyway. I, I was asked, I was here about a year and I was asked to play on a on a Joni Madden's Folk and Irish music cruise. Well, a lot of there's a lot of very famous artists that play on that cruise. It's it's quite the cruise now. Yeah. And I heard that Joni actually by luck I was asked. Um Eddie Reader had pulled out of the cruise because her husband wasn't well. And I met Joni on McLean Avenue on a Wednesday night. I was actually coming from training the New York senior team. Connie Malloy was the manager. It was like a Tuesday night. Joni and Eileen's country kitchen was in grabbing something to take home and I met her uh, and I had known Joni and she said that Eddie Reader had pulled out but I replaced her on the cruise I says I'd only started the company at the time and I says uh, obviously I wanted to go but let me see can I get things figured out for a week so the, um, I got it figured out and Joni flew me down to Miami to get on the, the boat and I was with Parik Allen from the McLean Avenue band he was the only person I knew we were standing on, in line to get on the ship and this taxi pulls up and Erin jumps out of it with her mother, her brother and her stepdad and Parik introduced me to Erin and her family. That was the first time I met her and just a quick chat like, but I saw that she had a Tyrone sticker on her fiddle <laughs> and a Kerry sticker and I says, now there's a rare combination. Um, so then I asked her about that and then we get chatting and then that's how we met the rest was history. But yeah, she, she went back to her, her mother and her sister Nadine, and she says, "I think I just met my future husband." Aww. They're all, you know, but little did you know. That's amazing. It's 
seems like you were meant to be because obviously Aaron comes from a very well-known family of musicians and, and I think it's lovely like how the two of you and her whole family and you know play together. So then tell me, Mickey, you said that you were only here a year and then started your company. Is that right? That's right, yeah. And how yeah. how come you moved so quickly? Were you nervous or or what would like, be the push? I don't like to hang around, Sophie. That's just the kind of personality that I have, I suppose. Look, it's great looking back on hindsight. I, I can't really answer that. Why? I just figured that there's a certain expectation when you come to this country, you need to do well, um, you know, or, or at least carry your own flag sort of thing. But I was very fortunate to meet a lot of good people that helped me. The, the first guy I worked for out here was another throne man, Martin Donnelly. And Martin was very helpful to me in setting up my company and giving me the work and, you know, got me going. And, you know, he was the, the springboard for me, you know, to, for me to move on and do my own thing. Like, and that will be forever grateful for. So that, that's how it started. I was working with Martin and then the opportunity came to do a job and threw Martin at a company and, and I started doing that. and then. That was my first job. Um, I set that up and then just, you know, I was training the New York senior team and then I got to know someone else. We got to know someone else and it just happened. And, you know, there was a lot of hard work involved. There's a lot of long hours. There was sometimes I was wondering, was it worth it at all? At the very early days, it was very, very difficult. And you're in a big city and, you know, you, you learn fairly quickly that you have to really, you know, start, you know, bucking up and, figuring things out you just be swallowed up mm. luckily listen there was days that I questioned every bit of it there was days I was like is this really worth it all and I can look back now and say it was worth every bit of it you know yeah. um, we now employ over 100 people we're um, we're constantly growing you know we're in a very good place as a company right now um, and, and things are good so you know, I can't complain. It's been it's been worth every part of the journey. And you know, there's a I have I have you know my own growth personally, my personal development just from when I started almost ten years ago till where I'm at now, um, has been phenomenal. And I would love to go back to that man ten years ago just to see how green that actually was around the years, and what actually I have learned. You know, and every day in this office I learn every job we do we learn and that's the beauty of all of the, about this construction is it's it's constantly evolving the buildings are getting bigger there's just a such a, a melting pot of ethnic diversity in the whole city it's just it has for me it has everything that you want every morning I drive over the George Washington Bridge it's like I just get revigorated every time you know it's just like it's going into a championship match you know it's just it's a new big day for me it, it really it really you know it's hard to explain it 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 gets me going, you know, uh -huh. I like take it on. It's just the kind of person that I am. Yeah. Oh, I think that's actually class the way you just described that, Mickey, because some people don't have the same feeling, you know, you can be in New York for a few years and it's not for some people and it's, it's tough going and you have to, as you say, you have to be open to learn and you have to put the hard work in and the hours in and, and what would your advice sort of be to some young guys maybe starting out here? Like, what are the sort of, if you're employing somebody, what are the sort of traits that you look for in, in someone who might just be new here in New York? So I have a very unorthodox way of interviewing, believe it or not. I left school with no GCSEs. I left school with no A-levels, no college degree, none of that, you know. Here's that I decided to enroll in an open university degree and things like that. But I think what a lot of people have to be very careful of just before I get into that is 
you know, the social media these days where you turn on, you see all these videos of self-development, personal development, and all these buzz, buzzwords flying around and these short 30-second videos, you know, to take over the world and all this sort of stuff. I think that can be detrimental to a lot of people. And, and, and I say that in the greatest of respect um, because I find, like, when I'm interviewing people, the main traits that I look in people is I basically... I, if I'm interviewing a stranger, I don't know their worth in terms of what they can add to me or to my company or whatever else. So, you know, the resume has it. So I'm assuming that they're being honest in their resume and they come in and I basically tell them, look, if I if everything you have said here is is correct, well, then you're more than qualified for this, this position. Actually, you're maybe overqualified for it. That's even better again in my eyes. So I basically tell them how I set up my company what the values are for me within the company, the personnel that I have working for me are all great people. And that took time to build. And then I ask you, ask them, you know, go you away. You've got the job, but go away and make sure that this company is a fit for you because I want you to come in and feel comfortable. I want you to be happy in your place of employment. And if, most of all, I really want you to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And because if I'm getting the best version of you, well, then I'm, I'm laughing all day long. I'm getting the best out of you that anybody's getting out of you. So I want to make your uh, work here very comfortable and enjoyable because after all, that is a good percentage of what we do on a daily basis. So that's, they look at me like as if I've horns growing out of my head, but it has worked for me. And I really treated, like I really treat uh, in, in, the, in the business here, everybody is 11 playing field. Yes, there is accountability. I'm not disputing that at all. There's accountability for the work that has to be carried out every day from project managers to director of operations to our supervisors. But that's all it is, is accountability. And none of them is better than any of the rest of them. They're all the very same. That's just how I treat the company because that gives, it's a, it's a, it's a fair playing field and everybody feels exactly the same. And it has worked for me and everybody gets on well and we have a great laugh but we get work done at the same time. So in terms of qualities of people coming in, I just want them to know, I, I sort of outlined, this is what the company's about. And, you know, you, you go and figure out if it's a fit for you. I actually had a Harvard student who interviewed with me and we had this conversation and she called me up, this is about two years ago, and she says, Mickey, I don't actually want to take the job, which was, which was brilliant because I knew she had figured it out. Like she just, she knew that it wasn't a fit for her, you know? And I, I appreciated that. And that's exactly what I'm setting out to achieve. You know, just tell me it's not a fit for you because in, in six months, we're going to be back to square one anyway. So it's just changing the direction and the thought process and how we recruit. Because the reason I, I was going through, and I was, I was doing a large turnover of employees and it wasn't working out. And I was saying, why is this not working out, you know? And I figured that that was the reason why. Yeah, like communication, that's a very refreshing approach, both for you, the employer, and the potential employee. Massive respect for how you've been running your company. And I know that last year, obviously, with COVID hit, did you find a big sort of slowdown? How did you manage that as, as a team and as a, as a president of the company? Yeah, we were, we were hit very hard. Um, we had like two essential jobs that, that were deemed essential from the city that we could keep open. Um, just because there was structural um, content within the job in the building, um, but we we laid off laid off a good 80, 80 workers, you know, and we tried, you know, obviously I tried to do the right thing, but it just uh, it wasn't there. 
we kept on um, most of our estimators and the core of our office staff. So we were able to keep it just going literally we're just we were coming in, there was nothing to do. But we still had a we kept pricing work, we kept pricing, we kept ourselves motivated. And it has paid dividends because now that we're out the other side or almost out the other side, we're obviously in the uptake again and it's very, very busy and we're getting busier. So if anybody's listening and they want work, call us. We're hiring. Project <laughs> manager and everything else. Um, so it hit us very, very hard. We get hit very hard. But thankfully, we hopefully we've weathered the storm and we're out the other side. Mm. Well, speaking of weathering the storm, Mickey, I actually can't believe that it's five months ago that we all heard here in the in the Irish American community in New York that Mickey Coleman had suffered a massive heart attack and it was unbelievable then it's still unbelievable now and and to see you now looking extremely fit and healthy and just speaking so you know positively and back to work and and you have that sort of passion for life it's like it's I can see it visibly it's kind of a miracle can you take me back to to the end of March absolutely that was probably the turning point for a lot of things going forward um 29th of March was no different than any other day um I went around I came to work I went around all the jobs with um Derek Barry who runs all my operations um and that was unusual because I didn't usually go around all the jobs that you know it's not it's just a lot um so for some reason that day i just went around the jobs with him um just for an, more of an ozy than anything you know and um came up the road don't remember coming up the road i remember going around some of the jobs but um i came i i drove home obviously and i went for a run that i would have done maybe two or three times a week roughly about five kilometer run went for the run felt a hundred percent Came back from the run. Erin had made me a sandwich. Um, she went to bed. Um, I sat watching RTE News and just out of the blue, I got a massive pain in the chest. I knew it. this is not something that I have ever felt before. So I panicked to see and I was like punching my chest. Just, you know, I felt like something was stuck and I was punching my chest really, really hard, like almost like just punching myself. Made it up the stairs and I went into her and she just had gotten into bed and I says, Aaron, you need to call 911. I think I'm taking a heart attack. And she looked at me and she goes, you've obviously went too hard in the run. Because I was at my top off, I was sweating. I was still in my running gear. I was literally only in the house five, ten minutes. And she goes, I says, Aaron, listen, you need to call 911. So she knew then at that point that I wasn't joking or that it was serious. She got a towel, she put it around my neck and that sort of eased it a little bit for like a split. I'm going to say 20 seconds, which was great. And then bang, it hit me again. And then she said to me, let's go downstairs. Can you make it downstairs? Let's be downstairs by the time the ambulance come, um, the EMS. So I made it down the stairs, which felt like a mile. But I got down there and I was starting, I could feel myself starting to fade, you know, like getting the grey haze, you know. Made it into the living room. And the last thing I remember was two... Um, police officers coming into the house and I was on one knee and I, rem- I remember saying lads can somebody help me not that the pain was severe but I just knew that it wasn't good like it was deep inside like re- I knew it was my heart like I just knew it but it, I was I was banging as much as I could and then I died I dropped dead 
and within Aaron ran out screaming, this is what I'm, because I don't remember anything after that, and EMS were just pulling into the driveway, and they came in and they hit me with the, the fibrillator, the paddles as they call them, they got my heart moving, then twice more in the ambulance, my heart stopped again, I flatlined again, then for six and a half minutes in the hospital, they worked on me to get my heart going, and they did. Then they rushed me to theatre where they put in a stent. In my LAD, I had a Widowmaker heart attack, basically had a rupture, plaque rupture in my um, LAD artery. Then they, I was in a coma for three days then after that, and they put me on this hypothermia treatment to lower my temperature. They weren't sure if there was any brain damage or to ease up on the brain. And that was all very traumatic for Aaron. Not so much for me, because I don't remember much about it. And then I woke up, um, thankfully, and then the recovery really started after that. That's when my pain started, <laughs> at least. Um, that's the short version of that portion of it. And, and I woke up and I took a real good look at, you know, at what had happened. And once I was able to, you know, filter that into my thoughts, I spent a lot of time in the hospital and ICU. Well, actually, I didn't spend that long. It was 12 days, which... Considering what I had, there's people spend a month in ICU alone. I was out of the hospital in 12 days. But I had a real belief when I woke up that I could, you know, fix all this. I had a real belief that I wanted to fix it. I have two young children. And then everything led me to a plant-based diet. Obviously, if you want to talk more about all of that, we can. But I, I had a real spiritual awakening, to say the least. Um, people ask me, well, did you have an out-of-body experience? And... I kind of did. I didn't see myself lying in a bed, but I had, I was um, definitely in a different place, that's for sure. And the feelings that I felt and the things that I saw were very, um, were unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. Like I was floating, I was floating over, of all places, believe it or not. I was floating over Rockland GAA. I could see all these people praying for me. And I knew that they were praying for me. I couldn't individually identify anyone in particular but I knew that there were that I could just feel the energy that they were there that for me like and there was this energy that was pulling me like across the top of the clubhouse it was like a bird's eye view and there was this energy that was pulling me and I wanted to go it was the most serene feeling ever it was absolutely beautiful I was at I was at so much peace and this other energy was pulling me back and I woke up and I woke up on a ventilator and Father Brandon Fitzgerald had his hand on my head and he was praying over me in the ICU. And I remember, of all the things that I remember, I remember him saying to me, Mickey, you're going to be okay. Everything's in God's hands. You're going to be, you're going to be fine. And then they put me back to sleep because I was in, the, the coma was a medically induced coma. So I wasn't supposed to wake up. Plus I had breathing tubes in me, so I couldn't even talk. But I don't remember the breathing tubes. I just remember that conversation with him and feeling a real peace and then the next day they took me off the coma and Aaron came in with the iPad and this is where everything changed like um, she says Mickey I want you to watch on the iPad she says um, they're having a mass for you in Rockland tonight the GEA no <laughs> so um, in my mind um, Aaron says that I didn't say this physically even though I felt that I did say it, but in my mind, I must have said it, that I know, Aaron, I've already been there. I've saw it already. 
So that experience alone, like I wasn't a mass scorer. I didn't go to chapel every every Sunday. Might have went if I was singing at a funeral. I know if the truth be told, I actually struggled a lot with the Catholic Church and certain aspects of their recent history, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always had a lot of faith and I was brought up a Catholic and that's the faith that I had. And when I came around, something clicked inside of me spiritually, mentally and physically that I just knew that I, I had this belief that I'm going to get better. And, I, and something was was leading the way for me. Like, I really have to I really have to let your listeners know that. Like, if anybody knew me prior to this, this is not the kind of thing that I would certainly be talking about. But it was so strong and it has had such an impact. Listen, when you die and you come back from life, you start to analyze everything that you've ever done. For the last 10 years in this country, all I focused on was the materialistic goals that I had set for myself. When I woke up out of that coma, not one of those things that I had focused my attention on for the last 20 years could get me out of that bed just to hug my two kids again. None of it. So there was a real realization of where my focus had been and that focus was really no good to me at all at a point when I was at the lowest ebb of my life it could do nothing for me absolutely nothing and I think it was like a kick in the backside from the man above to say listen get your house in order and start realizing what's important you know Um, and that's the journey really when the journey started for me and it's been miraculous to say the least because I had so much damage to my heart from being dead basically three times that the doctors were telling me that my heart function wouldn't get better. So I had, for any of your listeners that are listening, I had a, an ejection fraction of 30%. Basically what that means is when your heart pumps blood, it's only able to pump 30% of the blood in it around your body. The average person is between 55 and 70 so I was half of the normal person. So I was yellow. I was gray looking. I had liver failure. Or my liver functions were not good. I had kidney failure. I had pneumonia. So I, even though I was awake, I had a big fight in my hands, you know, because when the heart stops, everything stopped. So I was struggling with oxygen. Um, all of those complications. Like I, I, I can always remember the sound of the oxygen for days in the hospital, just feeding it into me. Um, but I always felt strong. I always felt like I had a, in my mind, I was strong. I was going to beat this and I had to do everything to do that. And I believe that experience that I had was the driving force of my belief to do that. So that's where the journey started. And I started reading up and I, every day I would get stronger and stronger and stronger. And I remember setting all these little challenges in my head. Like the next time you're going to the bathroom, you're going yourself. The next time you have to get washed, you go on yourself. And they don't seem like a lot, but let me tell you, when you're not fit to lift your hand to scratch your head, very, very important. And I just kept building on that, building that, and building that. I was able to get out of the bed. I was able to walk. I was able to start climbing. Like, it's unbelievable. Like, just to climb three steps was so difficult at that particular time, you know? There's so much that you can talk about in terms of coming back from recovery. I've read up so much recently on... People that are, mine was a widow maker, there's a 6% survival rate. I'm 6% of the people in this country that survive that. It's just phenomenal, you know. And I'm so grateful that I'm one of those people that can tell that story, you know. But I, I read, I've said this in various other podcasts, there was an article in the New York Times that I dug up, and it was that 85% of 
heart heart survivors, heart attack survivors, cancer survivors, stroke survivors go into eighty five percent of them go into manic depression because of the fear factor, the anxiety. Is it going to happen again? Will it happen again? What if it had to happen? Kids, my wife, all of those things. They just, you know, the emotional turmoil and the roller coasters. Like I have to say, like for two weeks when I got at a hospital, I cried every day. Just again, I think that was part of that whole healing process. But it was just I didn't really know where am I going here. Like what this was like. I I walked out of the, into my house in a walking stick. Like it just was like my heart function was at thirty percent. Was it going to get better? I had this belief: I'm going to get it better. I'm going to get it better. So you know, those were the dark days, like that nobody seen. You know, there were days that I would wake up in the middle of the night thinking I was taking a heart attack again. You know, just just it was a lot to get my head around. You know, um, and then I was trying to be normal in terms of living in the house with my kids, and you know, trying not to show any weakness to them. There was a lot of a lot. You know, there's a story in that on its own, but it was just, it was crazy stuff. Like, and it was a big, that was a tough fight. And I can understand why people go into that dark place after something like that. Fortunately enough, you know, I come from a sporting background and I believe, you know, I had those tools within me to pull myself out of that place, you know, or had more experience of that than other people would have and had a good family support network and, you know, um, good friends and all the rest. A lot of people, again, don't have that backup. And I, and I really did. And people were brilliant. But I can understand how people fall back into that. Um, and I'm here to help anybody that is or ever wants to reach out. That's for sure. But I started the whole uh, process of healing. And I researched and researched and spoke to people that had went through tough times and um, my diet then everything pointed to a plant-based diet and that's what I decided to do and that's what I am doing and that was the best decision I ever made in my life by the way from a health point of view and to speed through without boring you with all the gory details um, I went for a, a mugger scan last week in Columbia University and my heart function has increased 17% and I'm back in cardiac um, in cardiac rehab I'm back running on the treadmill and doing my thing and I'm just delighted that it's all going the right direction and everything's, everything's pointing the right way. Oh my god Mickey I don't think I've ever been speechless on the podcast but like unbelievable how you've just explained the journey and like the post-traumatic stress that you must have incurred afterwards and that emotional like the trauma as you say you know for your family and for Erin and for yourself to like to see how you're you've approached this and have such sort of serenity you sort of have this tranquility about you and an understanding nearly like that it's very it's very clear that you're you've processed it and obviously this is going to be a long journey of process and what happened but is there and, and I really am interested in your plant-based diet is there any way you could have known that you had a heart issue or or was it even like something that was building up to a heart attack or was it just a freak accident was it lifestyle or that's a great question um <laughs> it was a question I struggle with to this day like if you put it in the context I I 40 it was 41 when it happened for three quarters of my lifetime I trained at a high level with football with Tyrone with my club Arbo, um, I watched what I ate, 
I didn't abuse myself in any way. I was training. I was in serious shape when it happened to me. But there's a few factors that are actually playing into it at the moment as we speak. When I took the heart attack, Aaron was asked, did I have COVID? And more research is coming out every day now that COVID is actually causing inflammation of the heart and the arteries, which I got a, a dossier from, I think it was Hackensack Meridian, where they were doing autopsies recently of young patients who had presented mild symptoms of COVID, no different than what I had, like a head cold for two days back in January. So you had COVID? I had COVID, yes. Very, very mild, but I tested positive back in January. And this autopsies that the Hackensack Meridian were doing were showing that in these autopsies that the heart was inflamed, there was inflammation of the heart and the arteries. And what this is causing, so they think, is the inner lining of your artery is a thing called the endothelium. And it's actually getting weakened and thinned out from the inflammation of COVID. And the plaque builds up in the outer layer of that endothelium. And what's happening is it's rupturing it and the plaque is seeping in to the bloodstream and causing the clot. And that's what happened in my situation. I had, I had a full physical three weeks prior to my heart attack and everything was fine. So, you know, in a strange way, I would take comfort in knowing that it was COVID that caused it. You know, it, I, you know the damage is done now, shall I say. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's just something that I don't... The doctor told me it wasn't my lifestyle. He told me that. It wasn't lifestyle like, um, mm. but at the same time, it's very hard to understand. Maybe, maybe we were eating. Maybe my my sodium levels were high, so maybe it had it still had a part to play in it. I'm not dismissing it. I really do believe that our food is our medicine, and that what what I have done in the last five months with my food intake has completely changed my life. Completely changed it. The night I was admitted, I had high triglycerides. My sodium levels were high. My cholesterol was at one thirty eight. I had an exam last week, as I told you, and my cholesterol is down to 35. Wow. Unbelievable. And heart functions up, you know, a lot of positives. Um, yeah. But yeah, that just on, on that, that's where we're at with that right now. Um, hopefully more research will show that maybe that was was the case, you know, mm. and it can, would be. Yeah. So you have an answer. Like, it's, it's yes. better to uh, know. You know, it's... it's um, it would be good because when you're when you're back when you're trying to make a comeback and you're running and all that kind of stuff, you know you're you're constantly thinking. It just changes your old perspective. But look, it's it's something that has happened to me. It's in the rear view mirror. I want to move on. The only way that I can change the past is with the future because that's the only thing I'm in control of. Is me right now at this present moment in time. I've been. Um, I think it was Wayne Dyer that once said, "You know, I've been bitten by the snake, but it's the venom." That'll, that'll kill you you know you can't undo the snake bite but you know if you hold on to that you know the anxiety and, and the fear factor well that'll ultimately kill you mm. so you know I don't have time for that now it's time to move on and fix everything yeah and take the reins that's uh, that's so powerful again interested now to talk about the plant-based approach you know what was it that made you obviously it's a dietary thing where you know, if for anyone who doesn't know plant-based, you just don't eat any meat, dairy, anything produced by an animal. Um, and you can see, firstly, you look the picture of health. And I know when I started doing it, I started to feel far better, like physically and feel fitter, even if you're not exercising more. What is it that do you see it being a sustainable sort of life choice for you? Absolutely. I love it. And I think it's... Um, 
you know, for some people it's boring. Oh, let's talk about plants. I actually think, look, it's, it's all a thought and it's a mindset, obviously. But to put it into perspective for people that aren't doing it, here's the questions you have to ask yourself. Me personally, that I asked myself, I was in a situation where I was, obviously I'm very motivated to do it just because of the whole trauma that I've came through, first of all. So let me just get that out of the way. But the other question that you have to ask yourself, if I went back, we're talking about lifestyle and all that, if I rewinded back 10 months ago to the old Mickey, would the old Mickey actually say to me he was happy with how things were being conducted in his life? Really and truly, like the diet, the stress levels, uh, you know, working your backside off in a, in a business, all of those things, were they really sustainable long-term? Mm -hmm. Or were you feeding the beast, so to speak? Because I can reassure you this, I can tell you this right now, there was no, I had zero level of contentment with inside of my body to, if I'm completely honest with you, I was always chasing the dangling carrot in front of me. And I never took quiet time for me, just me. My wife's an amazing woman. My kids are amazing. And I look back and going, they must have been looking at me going, what a, you know, a complete nut or jerk, like, you know. That's the real answer I think I would say to myself. Um, so there was a lot of things that went along with the diet. Um, I I've always say like there's three tiers to this for me. There's the physical side of it, which would entail my diet and physical activity, uh, recovery. Uh, there was a mental recovery and there's a spiritual recovery. And I think the three of them have to have aligned together for me. And what I mean by that is physically, I can bounce back. I can you know, hopefully start running and doing things that I've always done. Um, I can change what I eat physically, but then that's going to impact my mental status, you know, and then that'll impact my spiritual. So I don't, I think they all come together, believe it or not, without getting too wacky on you here, you know. I love it. I love it. So what I started to do, uh, Sophie, was I, I started to change my look at how I looked at food. Instead of a pleasure, I looked at it as a, as a medicine for me. So every time that I would eat something that I would be healing myself. So I looked at it as healing. I also started to meditate. I also started to really look into, I really started to examine my thought process, how I conducted myself, what made me happy, what didn't make me happy, what made me comfortable, what made me not comfortable. I really wanted to find an inner contentment within myself because I felt that that was key to everything. I felt it was it was so powerful to to getting me better because it all derived from that outer body experience. Let's say I, I really struggled initially after that to give some rationale to what actually happened to me. Just that portion of what happened to me. Why why was I floating over Auckland? Was I actually dead at that point? You know, at what point of the three days that I was unconscious was that happening? You know, does time not exist up there? Was that three days in our lifetime? Was it two seconds in another lifetime? You've no idea. Like some of the things that started to go through my head. And I was driving to LBI one day with Aaron and the kids and it sort of clicked to me. It says, Aaron, I think I've this figured out. And she says, oh, here we go again with one of his. <laughs> but this is what I started to think because I realized that while, while my body was fighting for its life, which is made up of cells and molecules, lying in a bed in Nyack Hospital with, on ventilators and tubes coming out of me every direction, my physical body was there. But my thought process, my mind, my spirit, whatever, you want to, whatever name you want to give it, was actually in the most beautiful place that I had ever been. 
and I was very happy there. Mm. So it, it, it made me think, you're probably saying, where's he going with this? Well, what that made me think later on was that our thought process, our spirit, our soul, or whatever it is, we don't pay enough attention to in our everyday lives. Every day that we live, we focus very much on the physical. So that molecule of cells that I talk about that was lying in the bed, well, that's what we focus our attention on every day. How do I look? How am I perceived by other people? How do people see me? Do I look good? Did I have makeup on? Did I gel my hair? Am I wearing the right clothes? All of those things mean are meaningless. They're really meaningless. And this is how I started to think that I need to tap in more to my spirituality, to my thought process, how I think about it, do things, how I do things, being grateful, having gratitude and all of those things. So firing out a lot of things there, I know, but I really started to tap into that. How do I quieten my mind and get an inner peace? And I believe that inner peace creates a healing process and the food contributes to that. You know, it all comes as a package kind of thing. And then mentally it helps you because it helps you understand things a little bit better, you know? So that's what I started to do. And I really started to focus in on it and really calm my inside, you know, calm me as a person. Um, I am a completely different person now and I don't get excited. I don't get too stressed anymore. And I believe it's all, you know, uh, a fragment of the thought process because when I had that conversation with Aaron, I was thinking to myself, like, you can, you can think of something. Everything started with a thought, like creation, like if we're, we're the building I'm in today. Somebody had to think of that to create it. And what I was getting when I was having the conversation with Aaron was that nobody could open up your head, go to that control center in your brain and say, oh, that's the very thought that Sophie was thinking. It's not in the physical realm, if you understand what I'm saying. Nobody can see it. Nobody can touch it, feel it, bottle it, sell it. You can't do that. It just exists in your mind. Nobody can tell you where it is. So you get it without getting too deep with you. There was no, there's no physical realm to that. So that was my thing. Why our thoughts, our spirit, our soul, or whatever you want to call it, another being really exists. You've often heard when growing up, all oh, your soul leaves your body. Going, I actually, I actually believe that now. I believe that we don't use that enough in our daily lives. And if we did, we wouldn't be rushing. We wouldn't be stressed. This thing that they call anxiety, wherever it is, came out of, and we take a pill. The other thing was, I left the hospital with a bag full of pills. And I understood fairly quickly. I'm not on any of those pills anymore. Maybe I'm on two, three of them at the most. I realized fairly quickly, when you're, again, going back to the physical and the mental side of it, when you're physically reaching to the outside for lift-ups to bring you up, you know, um, like when you're sick, you're going to need a pick-me-up. You're reaching outside again to get your pick-me-up. So whether that be your pills, taking the advice of your doctors, which I strongly recommend. But, you know, or some people turn to drugs or some people turn to alcohol and stuff like that. So they're looking external, you know, fixes. And I realized fairly quickly that none of that could fix me when I was sick. So I had to look within. And once I changed what I was thinking within, then everything without on the outside was perfect. We have to understand the world is a very perfect place. Sun rises, it sets, the moon shines, the rivers flow, the trees blossom, the flowers blossom. It's all very beautiful. There's only one problem, how we think. Yeah. So, of that. Sorry. Maybe, no, I stop apologizing because as the kids say, hook it to my veins. I just think 
what you're saying and what you're hitting on firstly I think you're going to have to write a book like that's just a guarantee because what you're getting at is so interesting and I can see that you're kind of on the verge of like this sort of holistic approach to you know a healthy life and it's not just a physically healthy life it's a spiritually emotionally mentally healthy life and just from the people like the guests I've had on the podcast anyone who's faced adversity or had a challenge now yours is a very extreme near-death actual death experience what I think people like you try to send the message and give the message of is that like we have to appreciate that that life is very precious you know and I think especially what's kind of appropriate for the podcast is and I I got caught up in it here for five six years myself and my own lifestyle is that when you're living in somewhere like New York you get so caught up in the in the speed and the pace and the the everything and you never take that moment I find there was a time I could never my mind would never settle and that's why I so love like the meditation that you're talking about you know I think it's so important to take that time where no one's with you no one's looking at you it's just you and your own your mind in your own head your mind in your own soul and and otherwise you're kind of you can be you can be physically healthy but that's not as you say the be all and end all you were physically and are physically healthy now but you know having this sort of holistic approach and and that's what we're seeing a sort of shift in I think in our general culture now is that it's not about the material things as much it's more about the kind of mental well-being emotional stability and and I think what you're saying makes great sense. And I think it's extremely inspiring, um, especially the spirituality thing, which is, I, I just want to tap into that for a second. Do you find yourself being specifically religious now? Or are you sort of I believe in sort of a power greater than us down here? Is there any sort of specific avenue or is it more a spiritual kind of greatness? Uh, a little bit of both, actually. Like I, I feel, again, just being brought up Celtic, I feel, I, I, I pray a deck of the rosary every night since it happened to me just because I feel the right thing to do, because I feel I've been given a second chance. Um, and when I woke up, Father Brandon Fitzgerald was praying over me. We said the rosary in the room. So I, 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 before I close my eyes every night, I do that. Um, and definitely have been brought closer. But in the greater scheme of things, spiritually, again, I've tapped into these greater resources around that as well. And I know that the those the tools are there to tap into and, and it's been phenomenal. Like just it's just like it's the quietness. Like it's easy to say all of this. And it's easy to say this to someone who's, you know, crazy busy, blah, blah, blah. And and I thought about this too. Obviously, I'm very motivated because of what happened to me. That's a given. I never want that to happen to anyone, nor them to experience what I've experienced in order to experience what I'm experiencing now. I would love to get the message across to say, listen. You don't have to go there to get how I'm feeling now. You're only starting, to, I'm only starting to live my life now. I came across a great quote, everyone has two lives. They start to live their second when they realize they only have one. And I thought it very powerful. I don't know who the author was of that quote, but I just thought that's, that's my story, yeah. you know, which is very powerful. But trying to put it into action, Sophie, is a whole different story. So if I sat down to a group of young people or young entrepreneurs or anybody that was struggling mentally, spiritually, or anything else, and says, look, script me telling you what I'm doing and all the rest, but how do I put, how do you put this into practice? And I have the answer for that. And well, at least the starting place for this. And I'll explain it to you very, very quickly. I woke up every morning prior to my heart attack. And 
before I get out of my bed, I would be staring at the ceiling. I'd be thinking of the 10 jobs or the 20 jobs that Shoreline were doing. And I would have every problem in those jobs created in my mind. It was a self-fulfilling prophecy that I was creating every single morning. And the minute that my foot hit the floor every day, I had 20 problems to deal with before I even got out of bed. That didn't even exist. Let's be honest. And the, the thing is, when you think it, you become it. What do you think you become? It's that simple. So how do you change that thought process? So what I started to do was every morning now that I wake up, first of all, I thank God that I'm alive. And I bring gratitude into my life. And I thank God that I have two beautiful children to spend the rest of my life with and a beautiful wife who loves me dearly and a beautiful family and great staff and, a, you know, just all food in the cupboard, able to take a shower, clean run. What a simple little things. And when you start to shift that thought process from problem to gratitude, because I don't care if you're on, uh, on death's doorstep, you have something to be grateful for. And when you start to develop that kind of mindset, um, so now I get out of bed every morning, so grateful that I can go and hug my two children and so grateful that I can go to work and so grateful that I can see friends and laugh about things and have an odd joke. There's so much that we can be so happy for. There is so much. But as a society, we tend to focus on the negatives. And I have to say this, when I was doing all of this here, those old thoughts start to seep back in and you start to get better physically and mentally and all these old thoughts start to creep their way back in again. And you have to push them back out again with the thought process. Like I've caught myself here in work, worrying about jobs and getting caught up and all that and then having to stop and, you know, and it all starts with gratitude. If you can start every day with gratitude, gradually the gratitude will start being in your life two hours a day, four hours a day, 10 hours a day until you're living a life full of gratitude. Now, we're not all running around, we're all in relationships and married and with kids and with work. We're not all running around like Happy Gilmore every day of the week. Don't get me wrong. But you start to you start to quieten your body and you start to quieten your mind and you start to create real fulfillment within yourself that things that used to bother you don't bother you anymore. You know, and there's, you change the way you start to look at things, you know, and, that, and then the way... When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at then change. It's a very true thing. Like, and that's how I started to implement all of that. And you manifest it all. You start to create that. And look, here's how I see it. If I walk out this door today and I want to see racism, you know what I'm going to see? I'm going to see racism. If I want to walk out that door and I want to see love, well, that's what I'm going to see. So you're completely in control of your, not only your own thoughts, but your own life and how you perceive that life through your own eyes. Because if you want to find love, you're going to find that every day of the week and you're going to live that. You know, and if you want to find resentment, hatred, like I, I, I listened to a lot of Wayne Dyer recently. Um, and if any of your listeners are listening, they should go check him out. And he's a great metaphor about an orange. That if he gives you an orange and you squeeze it, what's going to come out of that orange? Well, it's going to be orange juice. It's not going to be any other type of juice. And 100% of the times that you squeeze that orange, that's what's going to come out of it. So that's no different than ourselves. If I put the pressures of daily living on you and I start to squeeze you, what's going to come out of you? What's going to come out of you is what you're thinking, your thoughts process. So if it's anxiety, if it's anger, if it's resentment, if it's all of those things, that's what you start to personify into the world, into your relationships, your partners, your kids, all of that. That becomes your world. That was my world at one point in time. Unfortunately, I had a day to figure it all out, but 
<laughs> but Maggie, those are such powerful messages like of gratitude and of you know your thoughts becoming your reality and i think if we can take anything from what you've said today those are extremely inspiring things to take another just thing i would like to sort of finish up on is people anyone i've told i'd be, I'd be interviewing you they're all very excited but also are asking is there any sort of tests for males in their 40s or you know around your age that that they might get, you know, to, to see how their what condition their heart's in or anything you recommend. Absolutely. There is male and female. Yeah, Sophie, just so you know, there's a lot of females mm -hmm. that are getting this also. Absolutely. There's a calcification test you can get, a calcium test. Most hospitals do it. You just call them up. You're going to a quick 15-minute scan in and out. It costs like $100 maximum paid out of pocket. That's it. And you'll get a calcification test. That'll tell you the amount of calcification or plaque in your arteries. There's your average cholesterol test you can get from your doctor and your physical, a blood test. And then there's a dye test that can be done. That's where they pump a little bit of dye into your vein and they scan the arteries. Now, that is ultimately the main test you can get. But if you're not showing signs, you know, of any other difficulties, like a stress test, they're reluctant to do that. But if you, if you, feel that there may be something or you have a genetic dispensation in your family or whatever else and you feel like you might, you know, they'll do it. Like, But that's the calcification test, the day test, and then your regular blood test just for cholesterol levels. Keep an eye on them, the LDL cholesterol, which is a very important one to keep that down. And start eating plants. That's the most important thing. That has changed everything. Energy. Oh, my God. Phenomenal. Energy levels really high. I'm sure. God, bouncing out of bed, man. Flying. I love it. And when I'm in the cardiac rehab, I just want to do more. I want to do more. I want to do more. You know, you lose the two o'clock slump. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, Mickey, I can't thank you enough. I really, really can't. This has just been a powerful conversation. And I hope that somebody's monitoring your heart on Saturday when drone take on mail. Um, <laughs> and have have look after yourself when you're at home. And I hope you enjoy every minute. Thanks so much for your time today. Not a problem, Sophie. Thank you so much.